Well, folks, let's turn. We're back in, again, our study of the Gospel of John, John 19. And I want to ask you to continue to attempt asking for the Lord's help with this, to kind of see these passages with fresh eyes. As I've been working through this material, very sobering aspect. And the next week we see in a vivid, a this way, a quiet vividness of all that Christ went through. It should tear at our hearts at the same time recognizing that Jesus said this would this would glorify him and glorify the Father. But it is difficult to go through these passages. We're going to be looking at John 19. Any at verse one. And sometimes we know this material so well that we can almost miss the, the drama and, and the tragedy and the awfulness of it. And I want you to, pr to pray that the word will remind you again of all that Jesus is going through here. And at the same time, as awful as it is, to be reminded that, and Jesus will point this out again today, that God is in control. This is the Father's plan. And Jesus really is in control of these events as well. When people interrogate him, he asks them questions. When they expect answers of him, he won't always respond, right? When they want him to or how they want him to. But he will give the truth of who he is. And as we've seen even before Pilate, let's back up a little bit here. As Jesus was taken from the garden, betrayed by Judas, brought for Annas and Caiaphas, probably in the same residence, the same area there. And then was officially the Sanhedrin early in the morning, pronounced their verdict on his guilt. All of this a travity of justice, not following any of the normal rules for a fair trial they would have normally. And then going to Pilate in the Praetorium. And again, you can see a map of this out there on the table, get a better idea where these different places are. And they expect that they're going to be able to rush through this thing with Jesus and get him crucified and get this done. And Pilate slows it down. He says, wait a minute, hold your horses. We're going to do this the right way. And so let's, I'm going to ask you, why are you bringing him? What are the charges? And of course, they had no interest in that. Pilate interviews, interviews Jesus privately. Jesus, I'm convinced, gives Pilate an opportunity to accept the truth of who he is. <clears throat> there, as he makes a point that all of his followers follow after his truth. And Pilate rejects that opportunity by saying in a cynical, sarcastic way, what is true? Sends Jesus back out. Well, then we talked about <clears throat> Pilate's plan because even though he's not impressed with Jesus, really, he's looking at him from what we can tell here and saying, this, this is, is the whole controversy. This man is supposed to be some sort of king. You've got to be kidding me. He does realize that Jesus is innocent of their charges, that their charges are made up, and he wants to release him. And so remember his first idea is to go with their tradition 
and offer up another person that can be set free, Barabbas, a notorious insurrectionist who had really committed the sins that they're accusing Jesus of. And of course, the crowd didn't fall for that. They called for Barabbas to be released. Well, right before that happened, and we're not going to take time, again, we could go through, we're not going to go through every gospel detail and account because we're in the Gospel of John. But right before that, and you can read this in Luke 23 uh, later on, that Pilate finds out from the people that Jesus is a Galilean. And he realizes that Herod, Agrippa, is in town. And Herod has a closer jurisdiction over Jesus. And so he, first of all, sends him over to Herod. And Herod's excited about this because Herod has heard about Jesus for a long time and has wanted to interview him and almost wants him to do some sort of parlor trick or something to show him um, the power that he supposed that, that he thinks that he might have. And so Herod's delighted, but... Jesus doesn't play his game, and he doesn't perform in the way that Herod is expecting. Herod's disappointment mocks Jesus, sends him back to Pilate for the final decision. And now it's on Pilate, as again, Pilate is the one who has the final authority to have Jesus crucified. And he reminds Jesus of that. But folks, as we go through, again, these awful things, remember, Jesus will remind Pilate. You do have authority, but it's given to you. The Father is in control of all of this, and you would not have that authority if it wasn't given to you. Remember in all of this, God is in control. Yet we're going to see today the authority to crucify the king. Let's look at verse 5. We'll go back to verse 1, but let's start at verse 5. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, or it could be translated, he was very afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is the greater sin. Lord, let the truth of all that Jesus committed himself to the mocking brutality that sink in today as we see him facing the one that has the authority to crucify him. Yet we understand that he is the king that will also be one day that is the judge of all and one day will judge all that the judge of the whole world stands before Pilate to be judged, to be crucified. Let not that irony escape from us. Let us be reminded of all that Jesus went through because of our sin and had to go through. Let us be humbled. Father, if there's anyone here today who still does not have a relationship with Jesus, 
let this passage this morning draw them to the save to a saving knowledge of our Savior. And let us all be motivated to proclaim what Christ has done to this community, has done, that we proclaim it to this community, and let them know that he can offer salvation, forgiveness of sins for them too, because he is the king. He will reign. We look forward to that. In the meantime, give us much understanding from your word, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The authority to crucify the king in these first 11 verses of chapter 19, we see Pilate certainly does have the authority to have Jesus crucified. And in this, Pilate, not impressed by Jesus, mocks Jesus' kingship, first of all. But he does have a plan. His first plan failed with that, that whole Barabbas thing. So his second plan, as we begin verse 19, is this. He's convinced Jesus is innocent. And so he's going to bring the king, bring the supposed king back in, mock him have him beaten, and he's going to bring him back out. And he hopes that this will satiate the anger of the mob that are looking at him. Somehow they'll be satisfied and maybe even a little bit of sympathy so that he can release him. So verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, when we hear that word, we think, of the intense beating that the synoptics, remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, described and all that he went through with the Roman soldiers. But actually, folks, there was, at this time, there was three different types of beatings or floggings that this could represent. And it's important to understand what's going on here. It could take, <clears throat> flogging could take one of three forms. The first one is the fuscio gado, gadio, it's a less severe beating meted out for relatively light offenses like hooliganism. And then that person, after they were beaten, were given a severe warning. Don't let this happen again. And they were released. The second was the flagellatio, a brutal flogging. And that was ministered to criminals whose offenses were much more serious. So it elevated at that point. But even that, that second beating wasn't as terrible. The most terrible scourging of all, the verberatio, was truly awful. And it was the one that was always associated with punishments, and it included crucifixion. This was the most awful. This was the one we'll see next week, that a person, when they endured this, they literally could die before the end of the beating. It was so terrible. Now, which one is it in verse 1 that that Jesus had to endure? Well, I believe from my study here that it was the first one. It was the less severe beating. Because what was Pilate's intention? (coughs) Pilate intended to appease the Jews and then have Jesus released. Well, if he gives him the most severe beating, folks, he's not going to make it more than a couple hours and he's going to die. You always die from that most intense flogging or beating. And I think it was the first one here to begin with. He'll have the second one later. We'll see that next week. In actuality, it seems as if Jesus had two different sessions of beatings. And he went through all of this. But Pilate wants to bring him out hopefully have sympathy. 
But the soldiers did mock him, verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. These thorns, maybe you've heard this before, but there's a, 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 a plant, a tree called a date palm. And it has cruel long thorns, several inches long. Sometimes, some have been recorded almost 12 inches long sometimes. And these were awful, awful thorns. And most likely, that is what they made this cool crown. And then they had, this is a purple robe. Probably um, they had access to many military robes. This is a robe that honored the military. It was purple or or um, some of the Gospels describe it as scarlet, kind of maybe an in-between color there. But they put it on him, and the idea, of course, is not to honor him in any way, but it's to mock him. In other words, this man and Pilate is the instigator in all this, because he can't get over the fact that this man, this person is the one causing all the trouble. Well, let's have a little bit of fun with this. Let's put a crown of thorns on his head. And I don't think this was at the point where they beat the, the, the crown onto his head. I think that comes later. But still, even the fact of those huge long thorns being on his head, you know that that had to draw blood. And the head bleeds many times very profusely. And what else did they do? They arrayed him. They put this purple robe on him. And then they start the mocking. Again, the irony throughout all of this, this man truly is the king of the Jews. And the Romans mock him for that. The Roman soldiers, these big guys, verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And in mocking their obeisance to him rather than bowing down before him. And many times if you were showing um, humility and obeisance, you would touch the ring of the king or something. Instead, they beat his face. They, they smack him. They mock him. And he goes through all of this. But then Pilate returns. In verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He's making it clear, this is my official verdict. This man's innocent. He's not guilty. And I am letting you know now, this is the official stance of Rome. And then he has Jesus come out. And... Um, it says, verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And you can imagine um, this figure that seems helpless. He's swollen. He's bruised. He's bloodied. And instead of looking like a powerful insurrectionist attempting to rule, he looks like a fully helpless, pathetic figure. And again, as Pilate is letting the people see this. He's thinking, surely I can release him now. This has to work. They have to have a little bit of pity here. But he's underestimated his audience, hasn't he? And they say out loudly, verse 6, and after, well, Pilate says, behold, the man. What is he saying there? He's basically, I think it has the idea of, Behold, this is the man that you supposedly think thinks himself a king. Look at how insignificant he is. Look how I've mocked him. This man can't be a king. Behold the man. But even as Caiaphas and now Pilate are saying these things, they don't realize they are speaking truth. It is the son of man. Behold the son of man who is ready to die for the sins of the world. And they're speaking truth 
while mocking here. This is all God's work in this. So what do they say? What is the response? Are they sympathetic? And specifically, it points to the fact when the chief priests and officers saw him, these are the religious leaders. These are the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. They're not moved at all. They want him crucified. Why? Because cursed is the man who hangeth on the tree. They want all of Israel to look at Jesus and say, that man is cursed. And remember what Paul said in Galatians, that Jesus did take the curse upon him for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sins. And they want him crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate at this point gets frustrated. He's impatient. He's frustrated. Why is he frustrated? Because they refuse to accept his official verdict. Don't you know my authority? They're arguing against the very authority of Rome here. And what does he say in his frustration? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. I think he's also exasperated that these people, even though a pagan Roman here is exasperated, that the very people of God don't have any sympathy for this man that's been beaten. And so what I think he's saying here is, if you can't abide by my official verdict, then go ahead and try to crucify him yourself. And we would say in the modern vernacular, oh, oh wait, you can't. You don't have the authority. So abide by my decision, the official decision of Rome. I think that what, that's what uh, Pilate is uh, trying to portray here. But the religious leaders have their own strategy that's going to be proven very effective, maybe surprisingly, with Pilate. And they point out something, that Jesus, in their minds, has broken one of their laws. And this was important because one of Pilate's responsibilities was not only to maintain order according to Roman laws, but also the local laws of the people that he governed. And so as they now come before him and they shout out, he has, they, they tried to use a political angle about him being an insurrectionist. Pilate interviewed Jesus, said, no way, that's, that's not legitimate. And so now they're forced to give their real reason. He has blasphemed our God. He has broken our laws. And what law did he break? Well, Leviticus 24, 13 through 16, you don't have to turn there. But it was very clear about um, those that blasphemed. And throughout Jewish history, this came to be understood as those that would blaspheme the name of God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard and lay hands on him and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him. And then it continues on. This was, if it were true, this was a um, breaking of Jewish law. But the point, the, the real essence and truth of this is, is that Jesus really was and really is the Son of God. And they rejected that. And so they have called him, and you, you know Caiaphas, we've seen this, called him a blasphemer. This is a common theme. And now they bring this before Pilate. Um, and verse 7, let's look at it. Jew, the Jews answered him. This is the whole mob here. And it seems as if at this point, there are a number of Jewish people that have joined the religious leaders outside of Pilate's temporary residence here. 
And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, and I just read it for you from Leviticus 24, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, isn't this interesting? He was even more afraid. Pilate mocked Jesus' kingship. But now he fears Jesus' sonship. Why is he fearful about this aspect of Jesus as a son of God? Why would this statement cause a very arrogant, obviously very self-assured, confident ruler to be afraid? Well, I think we can rule out the idea that he's verging on belief in Jesus' identity. That he in some way saying, maybe this man really is the son of God. God's own people haven't even come to that conclusion yet in many ways. But there is some interesting, if you know some background, and we have some indication through uh, Roman history of this, that gives us an idea of what Pilate may have been afraid of. It seems as if even the most powerful Roman rulers at this time, you hear of uh, even King Herod, why do you want to see Jesus? Because he had some sort of superstition that John the Baptist had had, um, come back from the dead. And he wasn't thinking that God had done that. They were very superstitious. And they did believe in the spirit, in the spirit world, um, from what we can tell. But there, were, um, there was an understanding. There were common stories within the Romans that gods would sometimes take human form and be among them. And something else I'm sure was already playing on his mind. Do you remember Matthew 27, 19 tells us what Pilate's wife had said to him through this? I'll read it for you. And when he was set down at the judgment seat, seat, his wife said unto him, saying, she sends him a message. Have thou nothing to do with that just man? He's innocent. You're right. Don't convict him. Get as far away from him as possible is how I read that. For she says, I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. And now Pilate hears that he considers himself the son of God. And why is he afraid? Well, I think It's because Pilate thinks, oh my, I've just beaten and I've just mocked one of our, possibly our Roman gods that are walking around in human form. That's not a really good thing. I could really be in trouble here. I could be facing the the power of the gods myself. That makes more sense to me and why he would be afraid at this moment. And so then what, what happens to him he immediately goes back into his headquarters. You notice how he's going into his headquarters, talking to Jesus, coming back out and going back in. And one more time, he drags Jesus back in, verse 9, and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, thinking in his mind that this might be one of the gods, he says, where are you from? Wait a minute. Maybe I wasn't listening so closely before. Who, who are you? Where are you from? Who are you really? What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't obligate himself to give Pilate an answer. Part of that is not that he's just um, being obstinate. But do you remember from last week? Jesus has already given Pilate the answer. He's given Pilate the truth. And he said, those that follow my truth belong to me. And he has given Pilate opportunity, and Pilate has rejected the opportunity to really know who Jesus is. And Jesus knows that. He knows Pilate's not really interested in his truth. He's just fearful. And so really, there's, is there anything more to say anyway? 
as Jesus is there standing before him. And when he gives no answer, when Pilate sees that the governor of this region with all of his power roam behind him, that this prisoner isn't afraid of him at all, it irritates him, right? He said, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Every prisoner that would come before him and had the possibility of being crucified, even the worst of the criminals, I'm sure, trembled before Pilate as they realized what they were about to experience. And this man alone had the ability to release them or give them up to crucifixion. And Jesus doesn't tremble at all. He stands there quietly, confidently. Who's really in control here, right? And then Jesus does give him an answer here because he needs to correct him. Verse 11, Jesus answered him. And what he's saying here is, it's true you do have authority, but you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And interesting, really, he's saying here, right? And he said this before. Who has the authority? Who gave Pilate the authority? His father. And I think we understand that. And at the same time, is is, is Jesus absolving Pilate's guilt? Is he saying, it's okay, Pilate. There's other people that are more involved in this, and, and you're not responsible for this. No, he doesn't absolve Pilate of his guilt. He makes it clear that he is still sinning in this because he says, he who delivered over me over to you has the greater sin. You, This is a sin that you're being involved with if you turn me over to be crucified, if you don't accept the truth of who I am, Pilate. But... He's saying there are those that had more knowledge and that are behind this, that have intentions to see me crucified, to see my death. And they have the greater, um, the greater responsibility in this, in the sense of greater sin. All sin is um, equal in God's eyes in one sense. But in another sense here, Jesus is pointing out who is ultimately most culpable. In this. And who is he talking about, by the way? Who is the one that delivered him over to be crucified? Well, many times we may think Judas here. But if you remember, Judas didn't have the authority to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. I don't think he's talking here about Judas at all. I think he's talking about Caiaphas as the representative of the religious leaders, the head of the Sanhedrin. And these men, who themselves have given testimony that they await the Messiah and that they await the kingdom of God are now in full guilt, are fully culpable for turning their Messiah over to Rome to crucify him. It's remarkable. Their rejection and their hatred toward him. Well, Pilate had the authority, certainly, at this point to deliver Jesus over. And we're going to see in these last few verses that he does do exactly that. He will deliver Jesus up to be crucified. But just as we saw last week, these points are the same from last week. Pilate, again, before he gives him up, uh, declares Jesus as king two more times. 
And Jesus, uh, in his words and what he said to Pilate, they seem to somehow convince Pilate further that even though he's not impressed with Jesus, this man is innocent. And I have no business convicting him or sending him to be crucified. And he goes out and tries to argue his case further. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. And I don't know what words he used at that point, but he made it clear. I don't believe he's, he's guilty. I want to release him. I want to set him free. And then the Jewish leaders in particular, they kind of pull, if I can put it this way, they pull their trump card. They pull the final thing that they know will get him and will get what they want in this. And they say, the Jews cried out together, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes him a king opposes Caesar. What are they doing here? They're saying this man has given testimony that he is the king, the son of God, and he is an insurrectionist. He's guilty of this, of sedition. And if you don't deal with this, Pilate, we're going to let Rome know. It's not good. We're, we're going to send an official report to Rome and let them know that you let this guy go. Now, even though he's convinced that Jesus is innocent and wants to release him, we have from history, we know that Pilate's past dealings with the Jews, it, he didn't have a stellar record. Let's put it that way. And as he contemplates the idea of Caesar, and he knows how cruel the emperors can be. And the last thing that's not too unlike politics today in a lot of ways, local politics. The last thing you want is somebody over you looking too closely at your political record. They might learn some things that you might lose your position quickly. And Pilate, as he hears this, says, oh, I don't want Caesar looking in on my record. I don't want any part of that. Um, I don't want them to analyze the effectiveness of my rule. Even with this, so this finally moves him now to sit, verse 13, on the judgment seat. Do you know the Greek word for this judgment seat, by the way? The bima seat. And Pilate is about to convict, pass judgment from the bima seat on the judge of the world. Again, don't miss that irony. One day Jesus will return and he will judge and Pilate will be before him. But before he's done, Pilate in a desperate attempt, two more times to try to have him released. But let's look at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic, uh, Gabatha. And it says, now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. And all the imagery behind that, we could talk a lot about that. We have a timeline out there that kind of gives the indications of, of how this all fits together. But what was the preparation for the Passover? Some, some scholars think that it was Thursday or Friday, probably Friday. But this is when the Passover lambs were slain. And here is Jesus about ready to be offered up for crucifixion. Imagery that John is giving us here that Jesus, the precious lamb of glory, will soon be prepared for the Passover as the ultimate sacrifice. Don't miss these pictures. 
that John is giving to us. And so in the midst of this, Pilate cries out one more time for the Jews to gaze upon the one who supposedly calls himself king. Verse 14, the end of verse 14, he said to the Jews, behold, you're king. And what he's trying to do, I think, here is highlight their hypocrisy. They're, he's basically saying, you're talking about being all concerned about the emperor, Caesar. And he said, I know you folks. I know that you're looking for your own king. And I think he's, highlight, he's highlighting their hypocrisy, but also in, in a contemptuous way saying, you don't hold the Caesar as your king, someone like this. This helpless individual who I've mocked and beaten, behold, he's the only king you'll ever have. Of course, that didn't help things. In verse 15, they cried out, away with him, send him away, away with him, crucify him. And again, they give the response opposite to what Pilate has expected, and I think he's almost incredulous at this point. And when he says, shall I crucify your king? I think it has the idea of this. Do you really want me to crucify this man for some supposed claim of being your king? I've interviewed him. He's innocent. I'm convinced that is my verdict, and that has the power of Rome. And you really want to crucify this what to Pilate is an insignificant individual? You really want me to do that? Do you know how awful crucifixion is? Is this what you really want? Shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priests in particular say something that we kind of skip over many times, but really is highly poignant. Look at what they say. And John lays this on the chief priests in particular. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Do you realize what they're saying there? As I studied this, the Lord gave me more of a realization and just, again, compounded the amazement of the anger and rejection here. These are the chief priests, right? They're the highest spiritual leaders in Israel. Correct? And um, they are now swearing allegiance to a Roman emperor rather than their king. It's like in their frenzied attempt to move to conviction, they reveal in a grim, sobering irony the truth of their hearts. You think about the kingdom of the Messiah. Isn't that the one thing that all Jewish people longed for? For hundreds of years, looking for the Messiah coming, wondering when he would come. When Mary heard that she would be the mother of the Messiah, she broke out into a praise song, looking forward to the future kingdom, right? We know this. They longed for this expectantly. Jesus' followers sang about this, and what else did they do? They argued over it. The disciples, I want to be next to Jesus. No, I want to be. When the kingdom comes, these folks are, in a good way, obsessed the Jewish people with the kingdom of God. And they should be. They just got a lot of things mixed up and wrong here. They rejected their Messiah. But what are these religious leaders doing? They're utterly rejecting the whole concept of a kingdom and Messiah altogether. They're just sweeping it aside. And what they're saying when they say we have no king to Caesar, we look forward. We don't have any other king for kingdom for us than this political kingdom in this life. <clears throat> and whether they truly meant to say that and thinking about it, or it really was just something that came from their heart 
they reveal, don't they? The truth of what Jesus gave about them. That these really had no part in the kingdom. And they're revealing that with the very words that they say. They don't care about the kingdom. They have no interest in it at all. So he delivered over to them, not over to the Jews. They had to deliver over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And so next week, we'll see a detailed, um, according to John, description of what Jesus had to go through in that second awful, the worst of the beatings that Rome could give. I was thinking through all this and bringing all this together of a really a wonderful experience that I had as a child. I've told you stories about my pastor growing up. His name was Terry Pewitt. And he had a philosophy about ministry and kind of like the, the modern um, phrase that we hear today, but go big or go home. His was like, you know, do ministry big or don't do it at all. or Go big and maybe go broke <laughs> because uh, the things that he did were sometimes extravagant. But one thing um, that, he decided one Easter to do, and maybe you are aware of this cantata, it's called No Greater Love, uh, written by John W. Peterson. Um, I haven't heard it in a long time. But he decided to have our choir director not just do this, this uh, musical, this, uh, this cantata, but to do full drama. And he had men in the church make the sets. And we all had people made the costumes and we had makeup and it was a whole nine yards. I mean, this was kind of like sight and sound before sight and sound ever existed. Right. And we did it first, the first time in our church auditorium. And my dad, a lot of people were obviously picked to play different parts. There was a specific, a very dramatic part in this cantata where Pilate is singing. I find no fault with this man over and over again. And he's loud at the beginning but then the people behind him and around him, the mobs are slowly, but it continues to rise, singing, let him be crucified, let him be crucified, and they're repeating this over and over again. It is very moving, especially if you happen to be in the cantata, and you're amongst the people, and you're looking up, and, you know, my dad passed away recently, maybe that's why this memory came into place, but my dad was chosen to be pilot, and as I was studying this, I couldn't keep that image out. And anyway, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But this was so successful that our pastor decided, you know what, we need a bigger venue. And he got a hold of the local secular university, uh, Western College, and they had a beautiful, wonderful auditorium. And he said, can we do this in your auditorium? And somehow he finagled a way for us to do this. So we did this again in this, you know, thousand-seater auditorium. We gave tickets. We, we had tickets out. And when we finally came to the performance night, it was as a small child. I'm looking behind the curtain, around the curtain, like, wow, look at all those people. And we're doing this. And it was, it was so dramatic and effective. And at the end, I remember at this moment, my dad is pilot in front of all these people. And I will say, I know I'm biased here, but my dad actually played a much more sympathetic pilot <laughs> than what we have in scriptures. Because as he was seeing this, you could see the look on his face. He was literally begging the people, please don't do this. I find no fault with this man. And the crowd, can, the, the actors there, when we're sitting in the middle of all this, I'm looking up at my dad, I'm looking at this um, dramatic representation, the man that played Jesus, you know, bloodied and 
um, with makeup and different things. And it, the, the cry rose louder and louder. Let him be crucified. And then at the very end, three times, it overwhelms what Pilate is saying. And the crowd, the choir cries out, let him be crucified in song. And then they finally yell it one more time. And I'm sitting in the midst of this looking up. And what do you, as you can imagine, I'm thinking as a small child, please listen to my dad. Listen to Pilate. Let him go. And looking at the people that wanted him dead and blaming them and being angry with them. It was, it was a uh, impressionable moment for sure. Well, we can look at the scene here and we can feel the same way, right? Pilate obviously had the authority given to him by God to have Jesus crucified. The Jews delivered Jesus over Caiaphas and the others to have him crucified. And maybe you, like me, when I was a child, could look at that, and I'm sure all of us have looked at it at some point and say, how could you men let this happen? Or if we understand what Jesus is saying, maybe sometimes we look to God, or we have in the past, and say, God, how could you let this happen? Jesus says that you're in control of all things. What would be the answer that God would give in return? It's he allowed this to happen because of our sin, right? And folks, let's, as we continue to go through this, let's not lose sight of the fact that, yes, Caiaphas was culpable. Pilate was too. But who else? All of us, because of our sin, we are culpable too. We delivered him over to be crucified. And so when we go through this, remember again all that Jesus went through. And again, when I say, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, what I ask of you is don't mock the king like Pilate did. Don't reject the king like his people did. But put your faith and trust in his sacrifice on the cross that provides that forgiveness of sins that we all need. New life. Eternal life of the Father. Do that today. Understand that Jesus, submit to him as your king. Trust in him for forgiveness. Certainly. And if you have any questions about that, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our leaders. We would love to talk with you further about Christ. But there's one other thing I thought about, too. In the midst of all this, what are the people that we don't hear from? We don't hear. And John is an eyewitness from what we can tell. There's nobody giving the other side of things. There's nobody standing up for Jesus. The, the, the disciples have all fled. Maybe they thought, well, maybe Peter will say something, and Peter doesn't say anything either. And here you have the man that can put him to death that's mocking him, and you have the people of God rejecting him and calling him to be crucified, and there's no voices that we can tell to give the other side of things. And I just thought about this. This is a secondary application, folks, but don't people today mock Christ in our world? Don't they misunderstand and speak of things that they don't know when it comes to the Bible and to Jesus Christ? I thought about this. Don't let those voices be the only ones that are heard in our world today. But we need to proclaim, all of us, the truth of what Jesus went through for our sins. Don't let the mocking... And the rejection, be the loudest voices on the media and all these things. But in our community, make sure that we are proclaiming the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
and all that he went through and drawing and, and then letting the Lord draw people to him. Don't be afraid, but be bold. Let people know that they can have salvation and forgiveness of sin and new life forever. Father, help us to never lose sight of this picture. Help us give us further understanding. Lord, I know that as I, and even as I studied this, I still felt a little bit of hardness of heart because I've heard these things before. Move, continue to move me. Move us as next week we, we realize and we hear again the things that Jesus went through and suffered for us. And let us be motivated in love to proclaim him against those that mock and those that misunderstand and those that reject him. Give us boldness to proclaim the great king that will one day return. He will judge the world. We want to be on the right side of that and call others to be on the right side as well so that they can have eternal life. We, we, we know we are not condemned in him. We heard that this morning. So let us proclaim that to the world. Give us strength and boldness for that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.